Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the programme this week, Team New Zealand's just three wins away from the America's Cup, but somehow that means they're under pressure and not the defenders, according to Team Oracle. The Springboks spy a vulnerable all-black side, while the Silver Ferns spy a vulnerable Australian netball side. The All-Whites defender Ben Sigmund explains his moment of madness and rider. Benji Marshall rules himself out of the Kiwis World Cup campaign, and we hear what the appointment of new International Olympic Committee President Thomas Buck means. Back-to-back wins in the latest America's Cup races has put Team New Zealand just three wins away from resting the trophy from Defenders Oracle Team USA. New Zealand has won six races in the first to nine series, with Oracle having won just one, but still seven points adrift of Team New Zealand because of their two-race penalty. Oracle made a change to tactician, with four-time Olympic sailing champion Ben Ainsley replacing the veteran John Kostecki in the latest races, but it couldn't bring about a change in fortune. Oracle will be looking to make further changes and may not train before the next two races on Sunday if they decide to make major modifications to their boat. While Team New Zealand won both races comfortably, it wasn't all plain sailing after Dean Barker lost the start of the opening race. Right from the entry, we just uh, timing was all about out, and, um, and then I was actually looking at the wrong number in the pre-start, and uh, we just put ourselves in a bad position. And you know, really from there, we just we conceded the start. So um, yeah, I was pretty pissed off myself. Um, but you know, we got straight back into the race, and I think this type of race course and the way the boat's going, we've got opportunities as long as we're close to the bottom. How much sticky your brace for in the debrief? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm going uh, you know, to be putting my hand up pretty high for that one, but that um, was nice to bounce back and have a really uh, good, solid second race. Now, one of our commentators, just said a million miles from me, was calling it boring, beautifully boring. <laughs> it never feels boring, I'll tell you. It's, uh, there's always something going on, and the boats are very, very hard to, to manage. Today with slightly less breeze, it was uh, on that sort of cusp of foiling, non-foiling at times. Um, the jibes get a little bit harder and so more chances sort of making small mistakes. And, and you know, the guys really worked hard and uh, they'll be very tired tonight. Much being made of the, the dial down and the fact that uh, Oracle were calling for a penalty on you. What was, what was the tactic and, and how close did you feel you got? Oh, I was, there's nothing in it. It was... Uh, it's very clear what you're entitled to do out of um, you know when you're upwind, and you know we certainly didn't uh, didn't push it hard or do anything that was dangerous. It, you know, they um, they were quite late uh, bearing off to go behind us, and it just made it a bit harder for them. You know, Jimmy Spittle just then saying, uh, you know that that you it's all there for you to lose, and that's his motivation. I mean, you, you would probably recognise that. Um, you know, to be honest with you, it's you know we've got to go out and win it. It's not us to lose, it's, we've got to go and win this thing it's, uh, you know, we need need three more points we're only two thirds of the way through in terms of number of wins that we've uh, we've got so still a long long way to go and we've got a, you know, a tough 
weekend ahead, four races on Saturday and Sunday, and uh, the current's going to be quite different. We're going to have an ebb tide for the, the first time in this event, and, uh, and that'll mix it up a bit with the boats. Dean, what could they come up with that you haven't seen yet? Uh, <laughs> what could they come up with? Well, you know, they, they you know, really, the, the only options they've got now is changing foils, you know, to improve their one performance, and, you know, whether it's rudders or boards, you know, and I'm not even sure what they've got exactly, but, you know, they can still make changes there. But there's always a trade-off. Always a trade-off, and, you know, they'll potentially give up some downwind performance to um, to try and go better up one. It's, uh, it's nothing for nothing in these boats, so, yeah, we're they're very aware that you know if they make a change in that direction, then you know the boat for them will be um, harder to sail. That's Team New Zealand skipper Dean Barker. The All Blacks play South Africa at Eden Park on Saturday in a test that some are describing as the biggest since the Rugby World Cup final. Both teams are unbeaten in their three rugby championship matches so far, but with the Springboks coming off an historic victory over the Wallabies in Brisbane and the absence of skipper Richie McCaw. South Africans have a genuine belief that they can topple the All Blacks. Alex Coogan-Reeve spoke to Supersport South Africa's rugby editor, Brendan Nell, who's been impressed but not surprised by the Springboks' new expansive game plan. It's not so surprising for me. I, I've, had, I've worked with Hanneke Mayer for several years um, at the Bulls when they stood up there, and you've seen the same sort of progression you saw with the Bulls team in 2005, 2006, around there, uh, as you've seen with the Springbok team. People always used to slag him off for being a one-dimensional team, but every year his teams would score the most tries, and I think that's what really, really come into it. Springbok rugby, I think the problem has been that um, too many people try to adopt that game plan, uh, Jake White, um, Peter Davides when they came in, and at times um, it becomes very one-dimensional, and Hanukkah is not the type of guy who wants to play one-dimensional rugby. He realises the fact that they have to score tries to, to win games, and uh, I think personnel is the big difference at the moment and he's got the personnel to do it so so you'd say it's a mixture of um, the coaching style that he's brought in but also now he's actually got the players to play that game that he wants I think so, I think the fact that Valeria came onto the scene this, this year is a huge plus for him, he's but unpredictable, he drifts in and out of the back line in different positions and creates just a little bit of doubt in the opposition minds in terms of defence and he's got that chip and he, he um, you saw last week against Australia some beautiful passing and running lines so um, that's the one thing and I think uh, he just brings something different to what we traditionally have in South Africa the big backs that we have Yeah it seems like around the team now there's genuine confidence that they can really give the All Blacks a good show on Saturday given, even though it's so hard to, for them to win here in Auckland? Yeah, I think so, because um, if you look at it a year ago this time, they almost won in Dunedin. They should have won if they had a goal kicker, I still believe, but um, as it be as it may, there's no comments column in the results, uh, <laughs> the results column, but uh, uh, the, yeah, they, they were soundly beaten in Janus, but the All Blacks dominated that second half, outkicked them, really played much better, better rugby than them in that second half, and from then, it's sort of been a turnaround. I think the turnaround came for me against England at the end of the year where they won by one point. Everybody slagged them off and a week later the All Blacks lost. And just that, seeing that shift in, in mentality. And last year when they ended off, um, I remember Heineke saying that the set piece defence is now good. Now we've got to work on attack. And this year he's, those nine games they've had, nine games in a, in a trot they've won, they've slowly progressed in every game. And last week uh, I think the step up they took were surprised us all. I mean, we've always seen them play well away from home, but um, there's always been something, there's always been a soft moment or a, a, a slip tackle or something like that. 
and especially against Australia, you always feel you sh- you've got a chance against them. And uh, it was nice to see them do what all black teams do and put this opposition away. Do you think there's a feeling um, in South Africa that while last week was a great win and you had a big win at home against Argentina, that you know this is the All Blacks, it's a, like it's, they haven't proven anything yet? I, I, th- I think definitely so. Look, I mean, I think it was a big psychological breakthrough to beat Australia as emphatically as they did in Brisbane considering the history and how many teams that was the same place Jake White's team lost 49-0 um, so in terms of a psychological breakthrough it was a big a big thing for the team uh, but saying that uh, yeah, South Africans tend to measure success on the All Blacks uh, I mean everybody knows the Invictus moment the 95 was probably one of the greatest sporting moments for South Africa and, and it's, it's that sort of mentality because the All Blacks are so consistent and they and, and tend to play so well wherever they play. Um, they've almost become the benchmark, I think, for most teams. And Heineken said it to us a couple of months ago in June with the test there where he said, you can't understand, they've played well, they've won so many test matches already, but nobody's giving them credit. And, and, and the, the real answer to that is because you haven't beaten the All Blacks. Now, to beat them in New Zealand, as he says, is the ultimate. And uh, I think from a South African rugby fan's point of view, if you do that, then you've really, you've set, you've drawn a line in the sand, and, and that's where you've got to do it. So. And uh, just from some of the things I see online, South African rugby public are probably almost or as tough as the New Zealand rugby <laughs> public in terms of criticising their team. Are they, you sense that they get pretty frustrated that the All Blacks have had this period of dominance? I think so, and I think it comes, especially the, I won't say so much the younger rugby fans, more as the older ones, because I think a lot of them remember the, the dominance South Africa had in, you know, the last, sort of, before the professional era, and, uh, you know, they used to be very rare for either side to win away from home, so I think they remember that, and I, but rugby's changed quite a bit, and, you know, South Africa probably haven't done the best in, the, in that change. Um, a lot of times we are our own worst enemies with things that happens, political scandals, and selections and things that, and game plans and, and, and we've been stubborn at times so um, it's nice to see coach embracing now um, an expansive game plan and backing the guys to do it. And one of the big differences between South African rugby and New Zealand rugby in terms of the national teams is that um, South Africa do pick from uh, Europe and a lot of players are now playing over there. Well, how do you think that affects the team? Is it a positive or is it make it a bit tough? Uh, look, it's going to be a, it's, it's, it's an interesting debate that's going on back home because there's obviously pros and cons on both sides. Um, I think for me, this tour and this rugby championship, they couldn't have done anything else because they lost six or seven players to Europe after Super Rugby. And uh, if you had to if you had to take out Mornay Stein, Brian Abana, uh, Chandra Kruger. Um, I'm just trying to think of all the fronts where they run. You know, you probably rip out the heart of the team, and I don't think they'd stand a chance in the rugby championships. So I think at the end of the day, the bottom line is you have to pick your best team no matter where they are. I think we're going to probably eventually get to a point in rugby where it doesn't matter where a player plays. But I think a bigger question, and that's the debate that's going on back home, is is one of the reasons why players are leaving so easily is because of super rugby, because it's no longer, from a player's point of view, it's 19 weeks of of really hard rugby and um, where they can go play in Japan or France and they have less rugby, um, they, they can prolong their careers and they're earning, especially with the South African rain, they're earning twice or three times as much money. So, yeah, it's a no-brainer in terms of that. So I think the bigger question is how does Senzo shape the competition that it 
that, that we don't have the same sort of player fatigue and, and issues like that that are currently coming up. And it's, so it sounds like now South Africa will have six uh, in the next uh, broadcast deal? Yeah. It does, um, but one of the things that is not, still interesting is that right after that dis- decision was taken, another, we saw another report in South Africa saying that South Africa haven't committed themselves yet to the Sanzo deal. So the, the European thing is still on the table. Um, it's got its own challenges. I'm not sure rugby culture-wise... Um, with that in tune with Europe, as, as time time zone wise, and I can understand that argument. But um, you know, other than that, I don't think we're that in tune with Europe as we think we are. And um, it's it's going to be interesting to see what they decide. But either way, you know, the last broadcast deal, there was a big feeling in South Africa that that uh, it was bad for South African rugby in that it, everything just worked in Australia's favour. Australia got the extra team. Australia. Um, got a domestic competition in terms of the derbies which they never had and, and the ITM Cup, the Curry Cup suffered and yeah, that's the thing what we want to see back in South Africa is, is, is domestic rugby being protected in a form that's, that benefits the long term development of South African rugby because that's one of the reasons why we've got so many players going overseas at the moment. Alright, just finally can I get a prediction out of you for, for this weekend? South Africa's probably got their best chance of, of winning here for a long time. I've been here with a lot of teams and the confidence in the team and the way they're playing at the moment, they're doing well. Um, saying that, you can come here and play well and still lose. Uh, the All Blacks are a very consistent team and very good at, at um, punishing opposition mistakes. Uh, I'll have to go with my heart and say South Africa will win. I think it's going to be a tight game and I think it's going to be a, a bit of a seesaw game in terms of changing score at the time, but I think I'd go with South Africa to win. But last week I went with my head and I said Australia would win and I was proved horribly wrong and very happily so. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. For 15 years and 104 tests, Vicky Wilson was firmly entrenched in the Australian netball side, but now she's part of the Silver Ferns camp and plotting Australia's downfall in the opening Constellation Cup test in Invercargill on Sunday. Wilson became coach Waitamanu's assistant in May and says she feels very much at home in the New Zealand environment. With a number of recent retirements, she senses Australia may be vulnerable, but she's adamant there's no split loyalty. Up, you go right. This is my team, and you want your team to do the best it can possibly do. And you know, I, I think for, for everyone else, I think people need to be reminded. I haven't been involved in the Australian program since the day I, I retired. So you know, that was 1999, so 14 years ago. So a long time. So um, it, no, I feel I feel great. Even though you, you're still an Australian, though. Oh, I am, but it's about belonging to to a team. So it's a that sense of belonging. So and for me, being still the firm's assistant coach for the next couple of years, it's very much part of my focus and something that um, that I'm really enjoying. What have you looked to, to work on in particular coming in and, and now having a bit of time in the role that you feel that the Silver Ferns needed to work on? Well, it's more about fine-tuning. We've been doing a lot of work on, on options in, a, in attack and just not focusing on on the one person. So being able to have at least two, maybe three, you know, people available for, for a ball. And then also making sure that we've got depth 
in, in our vision and uh, we try and ensure that we've got something short coming and, and something long when we talk about attacking structures. And and also you know, a, lo- a lot of focus work on scoring off, off our centre pass and you know, getting that direct ball down court. So is that, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, a move away from that reliance on Irene van Dyke? Well, it's, it's more about... I think creating opportunities for for others. When you've got a spearhead like Irene in in the circle, it's just just such a I suppose a, a great target for you. And it doesn't matter you know who we put in there. We, we've got good targets, but we've got terrific contributors at goal attack with both Jody Brown and Maria Tutaye. So with both of them running out the front, I think that's what we mean about ensuring that you just don't put one person under pressure if they've got you know, a lot of heat on them, you, you're looking around and, and you, it's always someone else going to be available for you. How much of an adjustment has that been for the players, if, if any, and how have they adapted to it? They're very open to you know, different suggestions and it's been the way we've been able to set up various drills and situations. It's about not changing their, their styles, but just add, adding to their repertoire of skills. And I think that's important. It's not in, instead of, it's as well as, you know, don't forget you can do this and, you know, just a general reminder that this is possible. What do you think you've been able to bring to help them combat with the Australian defence then? Given that they play in the ANZ Championships, they get that regular competition against the Aussies. And it's, and it's more about the girls, you know, they've been able to to identify, you know, players, you know, strengths and, and weaknesses. And, you know, they do that very well. And, and it's more about, well, how do you counteract it? Well, what if this situation happens? You know, maybe they might stand this way. So just going through various scenarios and making them, you know, just think uh, about, you know, the different possible setups and, and how they can adapt their play to that. What's the biggest difference you might have noticed? I mean, yes, there's there's all the, the Trans Tasman competition, so I think I imagine things are sort of melding quite, or, or there's been a fair bit of that melding over the past few years. But is there anything in particular coming into a New Zealand setup that you've particularly noticed? Um, not really. I, I think you know from watching watching afar, you know, I've had a pretty good um, handle on on what's been happening and, and the style of play. So there's been no no real surprises at all. What do you, are you expecting from the Australians? I mean, there's been a few changes for them, retirement, injury, etc. I mean, they've still got that depth, though. Anything you're looking for there? Well, I, you know, losing someone like Natalie Von Berto out of the middle, she was such a great leader and, you know, defensively just contributed so much to that, that defensive unit. And she could just go all day long. So that's going to be something very different for you know, both their attacking lines and, and defensive lines. But you know, they're fortunate that they've got Kim Green and Maddie Brown. And Kim's played a number of games for Australia in the middle. So although they will be missing you know, Nat Bomberto, I think um, you know, Green's able to step up. But it's that, that intense pressure for the entire game. How much extra pressure do you think might be on the Australians given they lost that last series and the, the pressure that puts on the coach and the players? Well, I think they're under a, you know, a fair bit of pressure to, to try and get some, some wins on, on the board. And uh, it's been, I imagine, a number of years since there's been successive test losses. So I'll be going out very hard to to try and establish a win and get a good good start to the season. So we expect them to, you know, 
to come out very, very hard in this first one. Do you think this possibly then looks a weaker Australian side than there has been for some time? I don't know whether you'd call it weaker. It's just been there's been a number of changes in the line and and also, you know, as you said, with those retirements, losing Sherelle McMahon and Monia Gerard, they've lost that, that experience. But you know, because of the, the depth of player, they're able to, you know, bring in someone else. But it's about, I suppose, them trying to find that uh, understanding amongst their new combinations. So they may be a little more vulnerable than, than previously. Well, I think this is a an op- great opportunity for us to, you know, to to have a real, you know, good shot at them when they're, they're not running high on, um, you know, feeling good about their line. So a, a good chance for us. And fascinating for yourself to see you, how your work comes to fruition. That's what I'm excited about. You know, we've been working very hard over the last, you know, couple of months with the squad and, and with the team. And, and you need to have a point at which you go, well, how did we go? How did we fare in this area? So you can... You can do all your work. You've, you've crossed, you know, every every T. You dotted your eyes, but you need to have that that test match to say, yeah, this is this is where we're at. So we've got another benchmark from which we can work from. And quite a New Zealand introduction for you, Invercargill being the first test of the series. <laughs> well, this is my first time to Invercargill, so uh, I'm looking forward to. I always sit at home and I've watched the ANZ games that have been played down here, and the crowd just looks so parochial. They know what's going on. They love their netball. So I'm looking forward to being on the right side of the fence down here. <laughs> I was talking to Silver Ferns assistant coach and former Australian netball captain Vicky Wilson. The All-Whites defender Ben Sigmund says frustration simply got the better of him in a moment of madness and the side's 2-0 loss to the United Arab Emirates in the final of the Four Nations Tournament in Ryder earlier this week. Sigmund was sent off for stomping on an opponent late in the match and spoke publicly about the incident on his return to Wellington, again apologising and saying it's out of character for him. He's likely to be suspended by FIFA but won't be ruled out of New Zealand's World Cup qualifiers in November. Former All-Whites condemned the incident with Sam Malcolmson saying it was one of the worst things he'd seen on a football field. But Sigmund doesn't feel that's quite the case. Oh, that's their opinion. Um, you know, it's a pretty harsh opinion. Um, but you do, i just got to take it on the chin and accept it and, um, and I'll do that. And, and, and it's up to them to make their decision on how they're going to suspend me or how many games I'm going to get. What did Ricky say after the match? Oh, he was obviously disappointed, and um, you know he says he knows it's it's not me, you know it's not my character, and I play hard, but um, you know that that was just a bit over the line. Had it been pretty niggly? Uh, no, not really. I just just as I said, it was just pure frustration from my part. Um, I just wanted to get the team g'd up. You know, we're a team that's been proud for, for five years now, and uh, you know I just felt that we just didn't perform how we should as a New Zealand team, and and I tried to g the boys up, but it it just went wrong. Are you concerned at all about um, it denting your chances to be selected to play in November's World Cup? Oh, you, of course, when you make a bad decision, you do silly things, you know, you, you've got to be prepared to take the consequences and, you know, I've just got to get my head down now and uh, work hard for Phoenix and, you know, hopefully um, things go my way and I can get that squad for, for the playoffs because it's a huge, important um, opportunity. You're a family man, you're obviously a role model for young footballers. What's your message to people out there and the example you may have set? Yeah, look, I just, I just have to say sorry because it's, um, it's not acceptable. Um, as you say, I've got a young young son, and my son um, was watching the telly, and that probably hurt me the most to say, "Where's Daddy gone?" You know, and I've been you know red carded, so it's not it's not a nice situation. And 
um, I had to explain to him when I got home what, what, what happened, you know, and I'm not proud of that. Is it going to be hard to sort of balance going forward? Because playing full on is a big part of your game in a lot of ways, isn't it? Yeah, but there's, there's, there's a line, you know. Um, you know, I always play hard, but you know, that was just wrong what I did, mate. So um, I think that's an easy line to sort of sort out, and, um, and I will do that. You know, for me, I've, I just feel like I've just got to say sorry and put my hand up and say I made a mistake, just like um, all people do at times, and, and, and that's the best I can do. And, and same for young players, you know, you do get frustrated, things don't go right, just um, just stay cool and calm. And, and, and if you do make a mistake, I think it's important we do put our hands up and say, yep, yeah, I've done wrong, and, and that's what I'm doing right now. Phoenix boys supported you. Anyone give you a pat on the back when you came today? Oh, look, this team uh, is, Phoenix are real close, we're a good bunch of boys and they know that I'm hurting, they know that um, it wasn't the right thing to do but they, they know that I'll be back and come out for the Phoenix and um, ready for the season and, and I'm excited for that. Have you got much stick from them well, or from the always? Oh, look, it, it, I think it's it's tough, especially after a game, you know, we've just lost 2-0, we've probably had one of the worst performances in a long time and everyone was hurting, you know, and we, we flew out. Um, straight after the game, you know, and, and that's tough as well. You know, you sort of got to get on a plane and fly for nearly two days to get home. You know, so it's, it's been a it's been a long journey, and we just, as I say, back at the Phoenix now, and we've got to. Um, I've just got to press on now and, and and get stuck into this season coming because we've got a good young bunch of guys. Um, everything's really positive here at the moment, and we've got to make sure that positive stays and, and we have a good season. What did you say to them after, after the game? Oh, I just waited for them to. Um, to come in obviously they had a presentation and and once all the boys were in I just just made my apologies and said it wasn't good enough and um, won't let it happen again. That's All Whites defender Ben Sigmund. The rugby league career of Benji Marshall is officially over after he withdrew his name from the selection mix for the Kiwis World Cup campaign. Marshall who will link up with the Blues Super Rugby franchise next season played 27 tests for New Zealand including 19 as captain. But he's not in the train-on squad that will prepare to defend the World Cup in November. Alex Coogan-Reeve spoke to the Kiwis coach Stephen Kearney, who confirmed Marshall made the decision on his own. I think that was a um, you know a personal decision. He, you know he's you know, going to be required at um, at, uh, at the Blues you know training. I think it might have been the front end of November, and you know, obviously there's a fair bit to go on. You know, moving and getting himself already and what have you. So. Um, uh, yeah, I believe it was a personal decision. But and and at and at that stage, he was still in your reckoning to to be picked. Well, again, you know, mate, it was a, you know that we won't know who will be picked until um, you know the day after the grand final, and, and again, you know, the, the side as I've always um, said would, would have been selected on uh, performance and you know what we thought was going to be the best opportunity to win. You know the World Cup for us again, and um, you know that decision would have been made certainly the back end of uh, September. Um, um, so it was all would have been determined on uh, you know who we thought was best going to fit the uh, fit the group. Yeah, but and I but I guess he still would have been a guy you'd like to have around the team, especially in these sort of training squad environments. That's why he was always a uh, you know a part of the training, you know, the wider group of players. So um, you know he's he's been wonderful for our, you know, for our team and, and for our group of players over a long period. So, and his um, wealth of experience is, you know, is certainly, uh, you know, will be missed. So, he, he was always, he was always in contention. It was just a matter of, you know, when we could take away 24 players, whether he thought he was, uh, 
going to give us the best opportunity um, if he was available for selection, if he was going to give us the best opportunity to bring back the uh, the World Cup. Yeah, do you think there's also maybe he he felt himself he wasn't playing well enough and may not may not have been able to contribute the way he would have liked. Yeah, again, you 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 would you know, have to ask you know Benji that, but um, again, you know all I can say about you know is, is what you know Benji has done for us in in the past. You know, in big tournaments. I mean, um, you know, 2008 and two, the last World Cup in 2010. You know, two great examples. So. Um, you know, for, for, for me, I think that's you know that's how we you know, how we all should um, remember Benji and the Kiwi jumper, and, and uh, uh, you know that's really important for all of us to you know to remind ourselves of that. You know, as I said, he, he uh, he's been a wonderful contributor to our game at Test match level, and, and you know, obviously from the club level for a long time at, at, at the Tigers. So I, I think it's important we you know we remind ourselves to remember it for you know for the for the positive work that he's done for our game. Just looking at uh, the other the other parts of the squad, obviously his uh, teammate Tim Simona in there. Um, just if you'd like to talk about what, what you've seen in him recently and his form. Yeah, I, I, I thought uh, you know the back end of the year is part of a uh, you know team which you know which was struggling. You know to uh, you know they, they sort of lacked a, you know all there was to see. They you know lacked a, lacked a bit of consistency, but you know I, I thought Tim. You know, show show some great promise, and, and um, uh, you know, certainly has a you know great you know great future. And I thought it was a reward, certainly for the you know for his effort and for his contribution to the team um, towards the back end of the of the season. So uh, you know, that's why you know we thought uh, from a development point of view that we would have including him as uh, as part of the wider you know as, as part of the wider group. That's Kiwis coach Stephen Kearney talking to Alex Coogan Reeves. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. Germany's Thomas Bach is the new president of the International Olympic Committee, succeeding Belgium's Jacques Rogge in the most powerful job in world sport. The 59-year-old Bach is the ninth president only in the body's 119-year history. All but one of its leaders have been Europeans, with Avery Brundage of the United States, the only outsider to break the monopoly, heading the IOC for 20 years until 1972. Bach, an Olympic fencing champion in 1976, will be hard-pressed in his first few months, having to deal with next year's Sochi Winter Olympics, which are under scrutiny over a controversial Russian anti-gay propaganda law. Barry Maist is one of the two New Zealanders who are IOC board members, and he was in Buenos Aires for the vote. He spoke to Barry Guy about Bach's appointment. I'm pleased that he got a good, clear majority because it's good to come into a role like that with a with a mandate from your colleagues. So uh, I think it's a good decision and I'd be very, very happy to work under him. What perhaps gave him the decisive vote, perhaps? Um, he has talked about sort of the unity. I think that he ticks a lot of boxes. First of all, he's, a, he's an Olympian, he's a gold medalist. Uh, he's a fellow 1976er, in fact, so uh, I relate to him well. We were both in Montreal. He understands sport. He's intelligent, very intelligent. He's experienced in uh, Olympic things. Um, he, he's served many roles in the IOC. He's got a legal background, which helps him. He's run the very large, powerful German sports organization, DOSB, for many years. And he's a statesman, and in that role, you have to be a statesman. You have to be able to 
work with uh, prime ministers and princes and kings and uh, and politicians in general, and he's got all those qualities. So I think he's uh, and he's personable. He's very personable, a good listener, a good people person, and I think we're going to be well served, uh, well served by Thomas. What era is he now going into, and what needs to be done? He's going into a challenging era, but I suppose that's not uh, surprising. Um, he's going into an era where the IOC is in very good financial shape. That's the first thing. Um, having said that, we're now going into a couple of risky games, and it's the games that generate most of the IOC's income through the sponsors that support the games. And in Sochi and in Rio, I think there are questions where the targets will be met. In recent years, we've been expecting that the coming out of the IOC to help sport around the world has increased. I think we might see a plateau, a plateauing of that, and that'll be a challenge for the IOC in the future because there's an expectation of more money. And I think that's helped by Japan, by Tokyo 2020, because they're probably the strongest, strongest financial shape. But I think that the IOC is, is uh, unified. Um, I don't think there is any major chasms within the IOC. I think it's... Uh, it's good. There's always good, robust and healthy debate and difference of opinion, as you'd expect, from uh, a large number of members from all cultures and, and races. Um, but I don't think it's in bad shape. It's just that some big decisions coming up. The whole question of the integrity of sport, the ethics of sport, you know, the match fixing and the sports betting, those are big issues, and the IOC will take a lead on them. I think there's also another challenge for them to reorganise the way the IOC is structured. There are many of us on the IOC who feel that our abilities and talents are not necessarily utilised to the best effect. Um, we have these large sessions where there's an awful lot of reporting to us. And I think that under Thomas, he will look at the skills and the strengths of members and he will work them hard and work them better. And anybody who belongs to any organisation wants to feel that they're contributing and making a difference. And I think he will reorganise things. I think the commissions of the IOC that we all work on, he will restructure them and, and he'll have them more aligned with people's actual interests rather than just making up a good uh, generic spread or a, uh, a geographical spread. So uh, I, I think there will be changes to the way we work as an organisation. These are not... Um, they're, they're big issues rather than big problems. Uh, so internal type things, anything on the outside that the rest of us may see, you know, the size of games, the number of sports, you know, that they do appear to be very big, these events? Well, the IOC is fairly well established with 10,500 athletes at the Olympic Games, so I don't think that there will be any expansion on that. What, what there might be is, first of all, there'll be two things. There'll be a review of the programme, very definitely. The way in which sports come onto the program, I think there's widespread acceptance that it isn't right. The process that we've gone through to take wrestling off and put wrestling on is something that many people around the world will not understand. At the same time, we've got to give real opportunity for new sports, you know, the rock climbing, which people might... It's a growing international sport focused on youth. And one thing that the Jack Rog has done so well is focus the games on youth and on the athlete. So I think we'll see changes to the program um, rather than changes to the size of the games. And uh, and I think that'll be for the, for the good. But it's a tricky one. The stakes are so high. When you see these sports vying here to get on the program of the games, you realise how much it means to them, how much 
money comes to them if they get on. As the head of wrestling said, this is the this is the most important decision in our sport in 3,000 years. It, it, it is significant, and and that's where I think a lot of uh, energy will go because most people realise it isn't right the way we do it at the moment. Tokyo was chosen to host the games. You're happy with that? I think it's a good decision for New Zealand and a good decision for the IOC. Uh, good for New Zealand because from our athletes' perspective, we know the games will be safe and secure. We know that it's in a similar time zone to our country, one flight away, easier to get to, cheaper. Uh, those are all the positives from New Zealand's perspective. Um, and I think we have a good relationship with the Japanese uh, uh, Olympic Committee, certainly, and therefore it's easy. We know them, and, and we can... And um, So that's from that point of view. From the IOC's perspective, I think it's good because in their presentation this week, they flashed up on the screen the large number of sponsors which they currently have lined up, and they've got sponsors queuing up to support them in Japan uh, for 2020. And that's what the IOC wants to hear because, as I said before, we've got a couple of risky games coming up where income levels might be down. And I think Japan or Tokyo will be the, will be the city that resurrects that and gets the graph heading up in the right direction again. So a good decision all round, in my view. While you're in that part of the world, is there any chance you get to see how Rio is uh, going? That's not far away. No, not on this particular trip, but we had a very full presentation from Rio um, and I think it would be fair to say that uh, there is a lot of good things happening there and there's an accelerated progress, but there remain quite a lot of concerns about things being uh, on time and in the way they were supposed to be delivered. So I think there will always be anxieties. Perhaps it was always going to be that sort of games. And I think also it doesn't actually help to have the Olympics immediately following um, the, the, the Football World Cup because I think people see expenditure that is compounded by having the two games in close proximity, and they're two of the, the largest events in the world in close proximity to a country that uh, needed needed to build a lot of infrastructure to cope and make a lot of changes in the city to cope. And therefore, I, there, there will be anxieties, in my view, around Rio right up to the start of the Games, perhaps a little bit like it was with Athens. But one thing we've also learned is that the IOC never lets the Games fall over. They never let them not be completed and, and not work well. They invest more energy and more time, but they'll get there. And there's also a lot of very positive things about Rio as well. It's, uh, the joy of the, the people, the fun element there, it'll be an absolute buzz, uh, that's for sure, and that's very much part of the Olympic Games. That's International Olympic Committee member Barry Maester talking to Barry Guy. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.